0: Welcome everybody, my name is Makal Nasrani and this is Islam for Christians, episode 31, Islamic history, circa 615, the first persecutions. Sumaya bint Kayat had been tortured before and so had her husband. So had the other Muslims strung out in the desert heat on that day. You know, often in an attempt to make them renounce Islam, they were dressed in metal armor and forced to stand in the hot desert sun. And for those who don't know, the yearly average high temperature, at least in our time, is over 100 degrees in Mecca. For those of you using the metric system, that's about 38 Celsius. And that's the average high. In summer, that temperature can often get up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, or in Celsius, 50 so just being exposed to the sun was a form of torture. But on this day, the Meccans, led by Abu Jahl, took it up a notch. On this occasion, Sumaya was tied between two camels. Offered a final chance to renounce her faith, she refused, and a spear was shoved between her legs. As one translation puts it delicately, she was stabbed with a spear in her female organ. This wound killed her, so I'll leave it to your imagination just how far into her body the spear traveled. I use the above example, with all the gory details, to try and jolt the modern mind into the ancient world and what persecution used to look like. Many of us, particularly those who live in my country, use the word persecution in a far softer way. And by comparison, it's almost unfair to use this, you know, to use this as the same word to describe what some early Muslims were forced to endure. When Americans use the word religious persecution, it's usually things with one thousandth of the seriousness of what the first Muslims encountered. Now, I know this is a global podcast, and thank you for all for that, by the way. You know, it's only about 10% of my listeners are in the USA right now. So, all your standards of what is considered religious persecution will vary wildly. But even in the most intolerant of countries, and the most violent, this would not be a normal thing. You know, it's just hard for us to imagine a society where this is okay. And really, this was one of the things Muhammad was fighting against his city's inability to recognize the inherent worth and dignity of all people. In Mecca, many were not seen as people, at least in the modern sense. They walked upright, they had opposable thumbs, they were intelligent compared to other species in the area, but none of that made them fully human, or at least equal in humanity to the masters or social betters. There was no such thing as natural rights. Rights were given to you by a government, by a tribe, by money, or something similar. If you did not have those things, your status was no different than that of a camel. Now, Muhammad would change all of that. Similar to the American Declaration of Independence, Muhammad was insisting that a person's rights and inherent worth are given by God, and only by God. In this society, it was common practice to just bury unwanted female infants in the desert. Life was cheap. If you could do it, it was okay. Might was right. The baby was weak and therefore had no rights. Now Islam would be a massive civilizing force in this respect. But Muhammad wasn't in charge yet, and his community was very vulnerable. Now back to Sumaya bint Kayat, the first Muslim martyr. Sumaya bint Khayyat. Sumaya, what a beautiful name. By the way, you know, I hope every Muslim remembers and reveres that name. You know, but it's a name that should also be drilled into the hearts of non-Muslims as well. She's not just an Islamic martyr. She died at the hand of pagans for the God of Abraham. Something which I'm guessing activates some Christian sensibilities and the sensibilities of people embedded in the Enlightenment ideals of indu- individual rights as well. You know, Sumaya bin Kayat and people like her, died in the cause of personal and religious freedom, for the freedom of conscience, for the right to practice religion sincerely, rather than simply as the dominant society sees fit. Had this been a thousand years later, she probably would have boarded a boat to the New World, and actually... Many of her compatriots would flee across the sea, just a much smaller sea, uh, and their host, a Christian, would also be moved by their plight. That will be the focus of next month's history episode. So, Sumaya bint Kayat, killed by Abu Jal, and that's the next part I want to get into. Who was this god-awful person? Abu Jahl is not his real name. It was Amr ibn Hisham. Abu Jahl means the father of ignorance, and it's a moniker Muhammad gave him. So Muhammad definitely got the last laugh here, because history is written by the winners, and he would also outlive Abu Jahl by about a decade. But in this moment, Abu Jal had the upper hand. He was a generally cruel person, known for blinding and torturing slaves, and he really, Really hated Islam. He once dumped camel entrails on Muhammad while he was praying and went to great lengths to stir up violence and persecution against Muslims. And, as in the early example, you know, he even personally murdered people. And what was it that made Abu Jahl think he could get away with this? It's pretty simple, actually. Murder wasn't really a problem as long as no one powerful complained. Abu Jahl was a member of the same tribe as Sumaya, and he massively outranked her. He was much greater in status, so who was going to protect her? The clan system was critical to understanding Mecca in so many ways, you know, and it's what kept Muhammad alive, actually. Muhammad was alive only because his uncle, Abu Talib, was so respected among Muhammad's clan, the Banu Hashim. But not everyone was Banu Hashim, and many of those would be in serious trouble. Now just a quick aside on tribes and clans, the individual clans should not be confused with the larger tribe of the Quraysh. Pretty much everyone who mattered in Mecca was a Quraysh, including Muhammad. Um, so back to the clans. So under the clan/ slash, you know, the clan system, slaves didn't have rights, And that brings us to the story of Bilal. Bilal was an Abyssinian slave, born into slavery after his mother was captured following the events of the year of the elephant in 570. See previous history episodes for more info on that. Bilal was a handsome man and also very intelligent. So smart, actually. That Muhammad would later put him in charge of the Muslim Treasury. But Bilal's defining feature was his voice, a melodic baritone that could both soothe and capture attention at the same time. Um, I think of James Earl Jones when I think of Bilal. You know, in, James Earl Jones, in his younger days, would have made a great Bilal if there was ever a movie. Unfortunately, Bilal was owned by a less than-enlightened Meccan uh, who wasn't very fond of Bilal's newfound faith. Much like in the pre-civil War American South, Arabia didn't care much for intelligent, independent-minded black men. Abu Jal eventually instigated Bilal's master to the point that he decided to torture the religion out of Bilal once and for all. So he tortured him, insisting he recant his faith. But he kept on saying, God is one. And I always imagine this story similar to Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven. Just think of that cadence as Bilal continues to profess his faith. But whereas the raven says, nevermore, Bilal only says, God is one. Bilal's master dragged him through the town, hoping to humiliate him out of his faith. Do you recant? asked the master. Quoth Bilal, God is one. Then his master tied him to stakes in the ground, face up in the hot desert sun. Do you recant? asked the master. Quoth Bilal, God is one. Then the master began punching him and kicking him. Do you recant? asked the master. Quoth Bilal, God is one. The master then begins to whip him over and over his wounds burning in the sun. Do you recant, asks the master. Quoth Bilal, God is one. Exasperated, the master ordered a giant boulder to be placed on Bilal's chest. This stone will not be removed, he said, until you worship my gods. Do you recant, asked the master. Quoth Bilal, God is one. Now, luckily for Bilal, Abu Bakr passed by at this point. He offered Bilal's master a better, stronger slave in exchange for Bilal, and this one wasn't a Muslim, and it would give him no trouble. Bilal's now former master took Abu Bakr's deal, and so Bilal was now a free man. Abu Bakr would free as many as seven Muslim slaves in this, pretty much exactly this way. Muhammad decided that the more vulnerable among them would need to leave Mecca, And the destination would be the kingdom of Bilal's ancestors, actually. The Christian kingdom of Abyssinia on the other side of the Red Sea. That will be the focus of next week's history episode. Next week, sorry, next month's history episode. Now, this was a low point to be sure, but good news was on the horizon for the Muslims. They added some high-profile converts who not only had high stature, but physically were tremendous warriors. The first of these people was Hamza, who was Muhammad's uncle, but more importantly, he was a revered warrior in Mecca. He was sometimes called the lion, not because he had attributes similar to a lion, although that's possible too, but because it was believed he actually hunted lions. Now remember, this is days before guns, you know, giant guns, (laughs) you know, he was hunting lions with a bow and arrow. Now, that's a great reputation to have, and he was considered the strongest man in the Quraysh tribe. Hamza was also a proper Quraysh man, so when he came back from a hunt, he would circumambulate the Kaaba, which meant he would circle around the Kaaba, and give the gods their due. One day he returned from a hunt, performed his ritual, and began talking to people about what had happened to his nephew Muhammad. Hamza was told that Muhammad, while sitting and bothering no one, had been cursed and insulted and all sorts of nasty things. Now, Hamza was not a meek person, to be sure, and this enraged him. Um, oh, did I mention the guy who insulted Muhammad was Abu Jal? <laughs> uh, he probably wouldn't have if he knew Hamza would come knocking on his door soon after. And that's exactly what happened. Hamza went looking for Abu Jal. He eventually found him and immediately whacked him with his bow, his bow, you know, and not just a tap, a hard, violent blow that made him bleed profusely from his head. So Hamza barked, "What will you say to my nephew if I follow his religion? What if I say what he says? You know, hit me back if you can." Abu Jal did not retaliate and neither did his fellow clansmen who were present. It might have been that they were all afraid of Hamza, or perhaps Abu Jal knew that he had gone too far. But from this point on, Abu Jahl would find it far more difficult to pick on Muslims. This was a massive conversion for Muhammad, too. This changed the minds of many people in Mecca, because Islam was no longer just for slaves and weaklings. Hamza, the epitome of strength, and all the things that Meccans respected had become a Muslim. Yeah, it might have been for spite and in anger, but a convert is a convert. Hamza was a Muslim now. Then, a year after Hamza converted, Muhammad reeled in a very, very big fish. Umar was a giant of man, literally. And he was skilled in martial arts and wrestling. Umar was very intelligent as well. And as a later caliph, he would be known for piety and sport and living. His moniker would eventually be Commander of the Faithful. And I always found it helpful to think of him as an Islamic version of Peter the Great. Now, Peter the Great was the Russian czar, uh, for those who don't know. lived about four or 500 years ago. I'd have to look that up. But Peter the Great was also a physical giant. He talked the talk and he walked the walk. He fought in battle as a common soldier. He created a city from scratch. You might know it as St. Petersburg, although it was briefly known as Leningrad, Petrograd. What he wanted the Russian Navy to be better, he disguised himself to work in the Dutch shipyards and learn how it was done. He then returned and quite literally built the Russian Navy himself. You know, Umar had the same combination of physical prowess, discipline, ambition, and intelligence. One other Christian equivalent could be St. Paul, because Umar, before he was a Muslim, persecuted the Muslims. Now, Umar wasn't a common punk in the mode of Abu Jahl. You know, Umar loved poetry and literature, and he was an intellectual. Unlike most of his contemporaries, he could read and write. And also, unlike most people in Mecca, he had visited Rome and Persia several times, taking the time to meet with scholars and absorbing all that he could. When the persecution started in 615, Umar was in favor of them. You know, He saw a giant threat to the unity of the Quraysh tribe and eventually he decided Muhammad needed to be assassinated. Luckily for Muhammad, Umar told his best friend, who admitted that he was, in fact, a secret Muslim. Umar soon found out that he had been surrounded by Muslims for years. He just didn't know it. And at this point, they all came out of the closet at once. He soon found his sister and her husband reciting verses from the Quran, and he started to lose his mind. His sister told him that he would have to kill her, that she would never renounce Islam. Umar smacked his sister across the face, drawing blood and knocking her to the floor. He regretted this immediately, obviously, and the shame he felt in that moment made him open to the fact that perhaps he, and not his sister, was the one who was wrong. Now, there is a certain type of modern person who will immediately condemn Umar's act of abuse and decide that he is an irredeemably horrible person who should be hated forever. If you are one of those, I understand the unpleasant aesthetics of this, but always remember that the world was not the same 1,400 years ago as it is now, and the violent context of ancient Arabia actually highlights Umar's character. He felt horribly guilty immediately afterward. How many powerful men in his society would have felt even a sliver of remorse for doing something like that? After all, it was the Muslims who were preaching that women were, you know, real people with feelings and rights and so on. You know, Umar was not one of these yet. Umar's current peers wouldn't have batted an eye at his actions. know, of course, that was all about to change. So you can think of this as an act of domestic abuse. Or, alternatively, and especially for the Christians listening, you can see it as a story of redemption, or even the Holy Spirit if you want to go that far. So Umar, immediately humbled, asked his sister for what she was reading, and upon reading the words himself, the mighty Umar decided that he, too, was a Muslim. Not only that, he wanted to go and tell Muhammad in person, immediately. The stories about what happened next vary, so I'll just give you the best version. Muhammad had prayed to God just the day before, asking Allah to reinforce the Muslims with someone mighty, someone like Abu Jahl or Umar. So imagine what was going through Muhammad's head when he saw Umar coming up the way with his sister. Yes, he was coming with someone Muhammad knew was a Muslim, but he was also carrying a sword. And just to make matters more interesting, Hamza was there as well, perhaps setting up the most epic battle since the Year of the Elephant. But there was no battle. Instead, Muhammad, noticing that Umar was looking out of sorts and very un-Umar-like, asked him what was wrong. Umar then confessed his faith to be Islam, something which intensely irritated the rest of the Quraish tribe and pretty much ensured that this new religion was not going to go away. In next month's history episode, I'll back up a little, before the Muslims added all this muscle, um, to talk about the small band of Muslims who migrated to Abyssinia to seek refuge under the Christian king. This story is one of my favorites in Muslim history, and it stands the test of time. One reason is that Ethiopia is still a largely Christian country despite its geography, right next to the Arabian Peninsula. You know, something which is still kind of baffling from a military point of view. But from a religious point of view, it actually makes quite a bit of sense, and we'll get into that next time. So thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.